0: This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Sam Lee. Sam Lee is an electrical contractor in the Bay Area, and today he's going to teach us everything about electricity. And unlike boring physics classes, Sam breaks down the complicated concepts into a very digestible format. This episode is incredibly interesting and is something that you will never learn unless you are in the field yourself. We talk about what goes into the work and what are the processes of getting electricity into a home. We'll go over how to get a contractor's license, as well as some actual case studies with actual numbers to see what it costs to get a large commercial job done and make sure you stay until the end because our conversation gets ridiculous and Sam gives us some tips that could potentially save your life in the future. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are.
1: Uh, My name is Samuel Lee. I am the president of Grand Electric and Construction Company we are mainly an electrical contractor, but we also have licenses in general and plumbing. Uh, my background myself, I'm an electrical engineer, and uh, we mostly deal in uh, public works projects such as schools, jails, hospitals, fire stations, police stations. But time to time, we do some commercials like restaurant remodels or some residentials as well, house flips, things along those nature.
0: Very cool. Can you tell me the difference between like commercial versus residential? like electrical needs
1: yeah yeah it all comes down to power uh most residences get about a hundred amp service from their public utility and most commercial spaces need about 200 amps of service and so what that means is pretty much equipment and electrical use that you have because of more power use especially in the commercial space you'll deal with kind of more stringent code and that will Tend to affect pricing so you can only have a minimum size of this conduit or you can't use Romex in the commercial space but you can use it in the residential space so that'll affect cost as well so the codes for commercial and residential are different with the I guess amperage difference and in the end it'll affect the consumer interesting
0: so is it the same for a commercial building where they have like a giant like 200 amp panel or do they also have like this giant transformer in the back to to like suck oh energy? I mean
1: It really depends how big the business is. A 200 amp panel is probably the same size as your 100 amp panel. It's not that much bigger. Usually a lot of 100 amp enclosures, which is like the case, uses a 200 amp enclosure. So the size difference wouldn't make a big difference there. When you start getting up to the 400, 600, 800 amps, yeah, then you're going to start dealing with uh, main distribution boards, which are huge. I mean, we're talking eight feet tall, probably by about anywhere from 10 to even 20 feet with very large breakers the size of like pretty much your entire arm and then from there yeah they'll break down into smaller sub panels and you kind of go from there but definitely as you go bigger will you need transformers yes if you're getting like a 277 480 service if you need 120 volts for your outlets you're going to need a step down transformer interesting
0: uh is there anything different inside the panel itself or they're all just like the same copper wire? all the way through?
1: Uh, no, inside the panel itself, I mean, for the branch circuits, yes, you're gonna have copper wire, but mainly the difference is the bus bar. And what the bus bar is, is pretty much these large copper, how can I explain it? Like slats almost that carry most of the amperage. And that's what your breakers plug into to get the different phases of electricity. And so the bu- bus bar size differs vastly from obviously hundred amps, which is probably just like two small strips to when you get to like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 amps, I mean, they're as large as your body.
0: Wow. I see. Very so,
1: dangerous stuff.
0: Very dangerous stuff. So basically, the higher amperage, the thicker the copper conductor needs to be, right? Correct. Right. The conductor
1: a, needs to be larger. Exactly. Right.
0: So for a yeah smaller amperage, you can have a thin copper wire, but for bigger stuff, you need a bigger...
1: Oh yeah. I mean, they can go as large as a thousand MCM, which I've never dealt with. Probably the biggest I've dealt with is like, if you put your thumb to your index finger, that's how large one conductor is. And sometimes they need multiple of that. So if you're dealing with 800 amps, you might need two of those into each phase. So a total of nine wires. So two for phase A, two for phase B, two for phase C, two for neutral, and then one for ground.
0: Okay. Very interesting. All right. Hopefully no one's lost it, but I kind of get it.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. This, this is going to be really complicated stuff. So I'll try to break it down really easy for you as we go along. Sounds Any questions good. you have, I'll, I'll answer it.
0: Sounds good. I mean, cause you know, man, I've been out of it for so long. I have no idea what's going on.
1: Uh, power distribution is a little bit different than the electrical engineering you and I learned in school. Yeah. That one is more focused on, I would say like hardware or software, but when it comes to power distribution, Usually large universities or very highly ranked universities don't do power anymore because they consider it to be like a basic electrical engineering. So a lot of, you would say, state universities, things like that, they actually have a power engineering department. And so they would learn like high voltage transmission lines and how, you know, the residential or commercial space would work, things like that.
0: Got it. Um, Can you tell me how the whole thing works? Like from a power plant to like your light bulb, how does electricity go from there to there?
1: Sure, yeah. So like uh, let's say a power plant, it generates power, whether it's through a dam or wind power, something like that. Then they have these high voltage transmission lines, carries electrici- o- electricity over probably to like what they call a substation, which essentially is a huge step down transformer, which it gets into the substation, transforms down to, let's say for a residential need, what they call 120, 240. And I'll explain this out to you. So. Uh, when you look outside your window, you see a transmission pole, you'll see three lines coming across. One will be phase A, one will be phase B, one will be neutral. Now, the voltage difference between phase A and neutral is 120 volts, which is like your common outlet or what they call receptacles. Phase B to neutral, same thing, is 120 volts. And then between phase A and phase B would be 240 volts. And so sometimes your dryer or your oven will need 240 volts. So sometimes if you open your panel, you'll notice those breakers have, instead of a single slot, it'll be a double slot. Ah. So that'll, that'll provide more voltage for you. So once it goes into the substation, it'll go around these residential poles. And then those three wires will enter what they call a weatherhead or the service entry. It's either on top of your roof, kind of looks like uh, what they call a gooseneck, And then uh, it'll go in there into your meter and then feed into your panel. Nowadays, they sell combo uh, meter panels, so you don't need to do it yourself. But back in the day, you had to go into the meter first and then into the panel, which it would go into the terminal lugs, which are connected to the bus bar, which the circuit breakers go into and then thus your branch circuits.
0: Nice, I like that description. makes Mm. sense. Okay, cool. So then from your panel, then it goes to whatever sub panels you might have inside your house. And it's basically just a copper wire from that panel to that light bulb directly, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. So I mean, most of the times you wouldn't even find a sub panel in a single residential home unless the home is really large. Sub panels are generally used because your main panel has run out of space. So what you do is you would take a couple of wires out, put a bigger breaker, make a new sub panel somewhere else that's connected to that new breaker, and then whatever those existing wires that were originally there get put into the sub panel, And then you could add even more circuits in there. So you really don't see sub panels too much in residentials. If you have it, it's just because they were too lazy to upgrade their existing uh, panel. And so that's why. you, or there's actually another situation or scenario where it becomes a code thing that for a large equipment or something like a multi-tenant unit, you know, whether it's a duplex, tri- triplex, something like that. If they each individually need their own per code, that's the only time you'd really use something like that.
0: Got it. So for a single-family residential subhouse, basically like an extension cable, where like you have one outlet, but now you can have like six different ports for your like stuff. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Got it. All right. Cool. Makes sense. Now, how do you get a contractor's license? What's the process to get one of
1: those? Well, I'm only familiar with California, but essentially, you go on the website, which is the CSLB the contractor State License Board in California. I think it's cslb.ca.gov. You have to get an application for a new original permit. Uh, I believe the fee is $300 to apply. You fill out the application, but the most important part of that application is the certification of work experience. You need to write out what kind, where you got your experience from and someone needs to actually sign off that's not you, unless you've done your own owner builder work for the past, I believe it's six years. And so usually you have another contractor or your manager or your employer, whether you did some work for another owner, they need to certify that what you wrote down as your experience to be true. I think you need a minimum of four years in California, but you can get waived two years if you have an undergraduate degree. And it says that it needs to be part of the same stuff, but I don't believe that to be true. So,
0: Hmm, got it. and
1: then after that, They'll probably kick your application back because you didn't write the right date, or they'll tell you to take out some things out of your work experience. You edit it, send it back to them, and then they give you a test date. Uh, The test consists of two parts, law and trade. And so each test is about four hours, 80 questions each side, give or take. And so the law portion just covers that you're running a contracting business correctly. <clears throat> Making sure pretty much that you don't fail. And then the trade portion is essentially your trade, whether it's general, electrical, plumbing, drywall, painting, blah, 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 that stuff. So once you pass the law portion, actually, you never have to take that law portion again. So if you plan on adding more licenses, whether it's plumbing, general, etc., you only need to take that trade portion. So I usually highly recommend people sign up for a school called Contractors State License School, CSLS, which I have no affiliation to, but I've taken it about three times. So it's a four-week process. You go once a week for about two hours, and those four classes cover the law section. So a teacher will go through, because the law section is the same for everybody. And then at home, you study your trade section. So they give you some problems and some code, things like that. And so for me, I took my electrical first, passed the law, passed the trade, and then I got my general license. I only had to do the trade. So I just at home study and the same thing for my plumbing, at home study. Got it. So
0: you have electrical, general and plumbing.
1: Yes. And then after that, once you pass and you have your license, then you need to get a bond for your company. And that covers pretty much essentially that, let's say you did a small construction project and you messed up bad and you don't have the money to finish the project, but you're on hook with the contract. That bonding company will come in to cover the costs, but once you use your bond, another bonding company won't ever bond you when it comes time to reveal saying that "Hey, we don't trust you to do this work," or you have to pay a higher premium. Sure. So that'll happen a lot of times with very small contractors, one or two guy operations that are doing a project for the first time, something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like insurance. Like once you hit your someone's car, you got to pay a higher fee, or they might not insure you ever. Correct. Get. All right. Yeah. Interesting. So. How big is your current team? And you guys
1: focus mostly on uh, the electrical side, right? Correct. Yeah, I would say about eighty percent of our gross revenue is electrical. and probably twenty percent comes from our maintenance projects we do with our general license, whether it's you know a toilet being clogged, a floor needing to be replaced or carpet or new painting of a building. So um, yeah, my team right now we have about ten people in the office. You know we have an office manager, a warehouse manager that, you know, organizes all of our materials and tools we have um, an estimator that estimates our big electrical jobs for us he's also one of our senior project managers uh got a general manager a bunch of project coordinators project engineers and uh yeah so we have 10 in the office there and then on the field we range between 10 and 20 depending on uh, how many projects we have going on at the time so we're a union contractor so at the time you know if we're kind of low on manpower we could pull them out of the uh, union hall and then use them to finish the project okay but we try not to do that because uh getting a worker out of the hall can be not only expensive but sometimes they really uh don't work too hard so we have to send them back and try to get another one
0: <laughs> yeah that's yeah, the problem working with unions i understand that feel yeah can we do like a case study of a project that you've done in the past maybe sure something big like you said you did post offices or schools And kind of go over the numbers Um, and like what it took to do the job
1: sure huh you want a larger project or a smaller project
0: up to you we can do both
1: okay uh well the project i'm working on now is a school modernization so i work as an electrical subcontractor to a general contractor i think our portion was about 1.3 million uh what we're doing is we're Demoing out their entire existing electrical and putting all new so, new panels, new conduits, new wires, new lighting, new fire alarm, <clears throat> new security, new low voltage. That's like your cat five, cat six, um, voiceover IP phones and things like that. Usually, if our portion is about twenty five percent of the total contract, if it's one point three, that's about a six or maybe eight million dollar job for the general. So electricity is usually. I would say the biggest portion of subcontracted work for all major projects. And then, um, yeah, so, you know, this project is phased out. So we start with a single building. The kids and teachers get moved out to the portables. Uh, You know, we demo out all the existing wires, cables, conduit, and uh, panels. And then, yeah, we order the new lights, get all the materials, the conduit, the straps, connectors, couplings, and put them in there. And you go building by building. And so... Luckily for this one, we don't need to change out the main distribution, but we can use the existing one there. But that also becomes like a really big thing is once you have to take out their existing service, that means whatever the public utility is going into their main panel, distributing it out to the multiple buildings. That one always becomes a rather large and very dangerous work because sometimes you're not allowed to turn off the power i mean pretty much you should never touch electrical live. but if the school or let's say in the case of a hospital requires that power to always stay live or maybe they can only give you 10 minutes of power shutdown uh if you touch it or drop a tool by accident or somehow ground it or short it that's someone's life right there Jeez. yeah so that stuff is, uh that stuff gets nerve wracking, especially because you're like working down under, it's late at night usually, so the students are there. Uh, you're crawling into a space that's very tight, but yet very live in electricity. Uh, pulling these wires are, are not easy, you know. Uh, copper is a very heavy metal, and it doesn't bend easy. And when you have to pull hundreds of feet, uh, you can't even do it with human, like, hand power after that you need to use like winches and tools and only that can pull it through and the dangers of that is that because it's pulling through a metal conduit if it's not installed correctly it'll tear the insulation of the wires and then now you're going to be you know electrifying those conduits essentially so there's a lot of risk in that kind of work so that's one of the bigger projects i'm handling uh some small residential pro- projects you know there may be between three to five thousand what it's usually is is like a panel replacement essentially so you know you have an old fuse box your fuses keep popping out whatever you want to go with breakers maybe your insurance came in and say hey we can't insure your home anymore because you're using a fuse box and that's some old technology you want to choose the circuit breaker so you'll keep the same amperage from 100 amps to 100 amps Uh, if you trigger something like let's say you have a really big home and you want a 200 amp service That'll trigger a lot of issues with your public utility and the city. A lot of inspections will need to happen because of that. You need to change the wire size coming in from your utility, such as PG&E. You need to increase, obviously, the conduit size, panel size. The inspectors will be a lot more stringent, that case there. So, you know, usually with a panel replacement, you put in a new weatherhead, a new, you know, service conduit. Goes into your meter and panel. You try to keep as much existing wires as you can, so you label it, mark it, based on the name, the previous naming panel board, and then you just re-plug it in, and it's good to go. But nowadays, uh, with all those electrical fires that you see in a lot of buildings, especially around the Bay Area, like that Oakland ghost ship things, mm-hmm. uh, it really falls on the inspectors. That kind of stuff is like, hey, you guys aren't doing your jobs inspecting these buildings you need to stay more to the code. And so nowadays they have this new product called an arc flash circuit interrupter. So it's a circuit breaker with a little white wire pigtail. What really stinks about these is, I mean, it's really great that it keeps you safe, but a lot of these buildings were wired. I guess the code has changed since then. So back in the day, how people used to wire your home would be, oh, bedroom one, outlets and lights, put it on the same circuit, make that into the fuse box. But with these arc fault circuit interrupters, it doesn't work with lighting. So nowadays code has changed where, okay, all of your lights stay on one circuit. So bedroom one and bedroom two's lights are on one circuit. And then bedroom one, bedroom two's receptacles are on one circuit. And then for the bedroom one, bedroom two outlets, you can change that into an arc fault circuit interrupter. Thus you're, you know, you're, I guess, uh, how can I say?
0: It's probably safer because you're having like the same subset of stuff on one circuit.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, you're adhering to the code, essentially. Yeah. So a lot of these veteran inspectors, I mean, if you get an older gentleman come out, usually they understand and they kind of just go, okay, and they sign your your uh, green tag for you is what they call it in the Bay Area. That's essentially the city inspecting the panel that you installed that when PG&E comes in and says, okay, you are passed by the city, then we'll bring in your permanent service, which means at the weatherhead with your services coming in, they'll make the permanent connection. So those are, I guess, two right there. Those ones, you know, it's pretty cheap. I would say a uh, panel is like 100 to 200 bucks. Each breaker might be like 20 bucks. You know, there's different panel sizes too. You know, you can get a combo with a meter. Those I would highly recommend in a residential getting a combo. Uh, you probably don't really need more than 30 circuits, which is pretty much 30 breakers or at least 30 spots. Um, sometimes it'll only come with 20. Sometimes it'll only come with 10 on older stuff. You can get up to 42, which is a lot. I really don't imagine anybody having that, but don't get me wrong, I've definitely seen it. Sometimes you just have a ton of lights or a ton of outlets or you know, maybe a five-bedroom home, something like that. And you might even need a sub-panel because of it, just depending on, on your needs. Or maybe you have a lot of equipment. Maybe you're using an electric dryer, so you're using a, two-pole, a two-pole breaker there, which is you know one of those switches that, Instead of a single slot, it will take two slots. Or maybe you're using an electric stove; that's another one there. Electric washer, another one there. Now you're running out of space. So different sizes will. Uh... Anyways, back to the uh, whole so, price. So wait, why
0: situation. do we why do we need um, why do we need a 200 amp panel in the first place? It seems like you can just have a 100 amp panel and just have a bunch of sub panels and you're good to go.
1: Not necessarily. So you can have a bunch of sub panels, but if your total usage goes over 100 amp, your whole building will. Essentially, break—not break, Not oh, break but it. your your service will pop. Essentially, so you have to turn everything on again, and you can't turn on your dryer and washer and stove and lights and outlets and blow dryer all at the same time. It can't handle that kind of load, and so your main hundred amp breaker will pop, and so it'll tell you, "Hey, you're going over my limit, which I can go." So, so essentially, that's where you need a two hundred amp.
0: Right. So essentially, the only main reason to have a sub panel is so you have more slots. That's basically it. That's pretty much it, yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, makes sense. So, yeah, let's go back on pricing. Uh, I'm just wondering, you said $1.3 million, That's how much they're going to pay you to do the work. Mm-hmm. What is the most, like, what's the most expensive part of that
1: job? It would be, I would say, single would probably be the materials, especially the lighting package. Uh, nowadays, California is really turning green. So, you have to, you know, Adhere to Title 24, which is like a low energy cost savings, you know, better for the environment. And so they'll go with LED lights that have dimming options so you can control how much power is coming in. They'll need to have occupancy sensors, daylight sensors, so it'll read the light coming in through the window and lower the lighting accordingly. You know, they need to be all controlled by a lighting, pa- uh, like a lighting panel. And so Lighting always comes out to be like for this project here, I think our lighting package was three hundred thousand of a one point three. That's a good 25 percent. That alone was there. And then the distribution will probably be about one hundred k. That's like your um, main power coming to your main panel. Labor is always a lot too, obviously. I would say about fifty percent of that cost is labor, especially when you're doing public works project and and they have a, what they call a project labor agreement, which is just a fancy word for a collective bargaining agreement. The union comes in with the school district or whatever, the owners group, and they make an agreement that says, yeah, you can only use union workers to do this work. Why a lot of public entities do this is because they're afraid of these unions. What the unions do is, all right, you don't wanna use unions? Then we're gonna strike your building. We're gonna protest outside for days, months, because we get the money that, You know, when you pay the worker, a portion of that goes to their union and they keep this emergency fund that, you know, when you hear about these teacher strikes or hotel workers strike that they're not getting paid enough, that's where they're getting their income from is they've been saving it up over time to essentially cause a big media storm that people don't want to have that kind of publicity. So labor is a big portion of that. And then the rest goes to pretty much overhead and profit. You know, your project managers, all your office supplies. Things inside that's your overhead there and so with public works it's very hard to hit I would say even 15% profit you're probably looking at about 10% profit and say you're running out of work and your guys really need work your company needs work and you've been losing your bids you might even bump your you know profit down to 5% just to get a job just to get people working just to move your business forward because when you're running out of work and you have to pay people and they're not working they start finding other jobs, you start getting smaller projects because you can't handle bigger projects and it's a,
0: yep. it's a tough downhill battle. spiral. Yes. Now I want to ask you, how long does it take to do a project like that?
1: Uh this project will probably take us about one year. So in the beginning, for the first three months, there's a period what they call submittal review. That means uh, most of these projects, they look for a certain specification that you need to conform to. Whether it's like you can only use three quarter inch conduit, you can't use half inch conduit. And so, and it can only be American made. So, the products you plan on using, you need to get their spec sheet submitted to the architect and engineer and review it and it, you know, kick it back to you if you need to fix anything. So, all the lights, all the kinds of wires you'll be using, all the straps, conduits, their connectors. Every single thing needs to be reviewed. And imagine for the general and architect, they're looking at everything else, including the plumbing, you know, the roofing, uh, the floors, concrete, asbestos, hazmat, all that stuff. They have to go over all that. So that's the first three months there. And then um, after that, you start with roughing. And so, or actually you start with demo. So whatever's existing, you tear it up, The drywall, the lighting, the, you know, T-bar grid ceiling, the floors, that all comes out. Then you start with the rough-in. What the rough-in means is all the walls are exposed minus the studs, and you start running your conduit and your plumbing through them. Once the rough-in is done, the inspector comes in, checks it out, says everything's good to essentially their spec sheet, you know, what we submitted our submittals on. And then from there, you can go right into wiring. And so while you're wiring, the drywall guys can come in. They start putting up their drywall. Then you can start putting in your devices, whether it's like a horn and strobe for fire alarm or your light fixtures in the T-bar grid or your low voltage data outlets, which is you know, essentially your CAT6 outlet in your wall. And from there, you put all the covers on, they start painting, and uh, that's usually how the project goes. And then so a lot of times with like, let's say roofers, you can't really go into that project until you know, we mark all the stub ups and it can't be raining. And then when the floor guys come in, nobody can go in there because (laughs) the floor guys are working. So no one can step on the floor. Everybody's got to get the hell out. Or especially with the drywall guys are sanding, you usually don't want to go in there. Why? Because it's just just a goddamn a lot of dust that you're breathing in and coughing. It's getting in your eyes. or You don't ever want to mess with the insulation guys too because all that fiberglass comes in. So there's kind of a schedule that you follow in terms – your general should set that schedule out for you. But – Everyone understands it. But if you fall behind in your project where, let's say, the drywall guy comes in early or the insulation guy comes in and I didn't finish my portion of the work, I'm on the hook for that cost to open it up, put my stuff in, and then I have to pay those drywall or insulation or painting guys to come back and make it look good again. So you have a strict schedule you need to follow that people are hanging onto each other. And, uh, yeah, it sucks because… sometimes the general that you work with does a really poor job of scheduling and it just affects everyone and that's where projects really go bad and so i told you that story where it's like you know when you sign up for a contractor's license you have a small bond i think it's only fifteen thousand for you to start off you mess up a project you're covered for that much but when you start messing up 50 million dollar projects because you haven't scheduled it correctly i mean that's your whole life on the lineup i don't want to talk about this other project that we we're working on but that general contractor had another project going on. They got kicked out by the school district and they're on the hook for 50 million. No way. And so, and so once the bond company comes in, that means all of their other work has to stop as well. And so you can only finish what you have in your hands. You can't go out and get a new job and plan for the future. You can only finish everything that you have first and the bond company controls the money going out to your subcontractors and accepting it from whatever owner that you're working with. And after that, once that's done, then you can go out and get a new job. But when you go out and get a new job, you need a new bond. Oh, wait, you used your $50 million bond? Hell no, we're not going to give you this job. So what do they do? Essentially, you have to pretty much claim bankruptcy, especially if those that you owe money to because you messed up somewhere that you didn't pay the right people at the right time because obviously you're using funds across different projects, which is considered fraud because you have to use those funds for that project only. But you know, people have to run a business. So there are lines that get blurred and things like that. But you close up shop, you find somebody else to hold a new license. So let's say I was the license holder. My license are gonna get pretty much suspended. And then somebody else has to kind of take on those license abilities. You have to open up a new company in their name and you just kind of work as a very high level position without any ownership or executive title per you know corporation standards of California.
0: Yeah. Wow. So,
1: so you have to find a really new good partner. And it's hard to get back up to that level because a lot of these questionnaires for banks and uh, pre-qualifying for a district They'll ask you, have you ever used your bond, you know, is your license suspended, you know, that'll really hurt your chances for getting better business. I mean, your skills are still there. So people in the industry, we all know each other if we're within the same, I guess, niche industry, you know, like, oh, we only do school. So we all kind of know each other. So it wouldn't be hard for you to find work working for someone else, but for you to get back in with your own business. Oh, <laughs> sad. It's very hard to start over again. It's very hard to start over again. Yeah. I'm sure. And so, yeah.
0: So, speaking of that, how many people are in your niche of doing schools and public works projects?
1: Well, um, you know, the construction business has been really good for the last 3, 4, 5 years. And so, a lot of people have been chasing private jobs because you don't have to conform to union wages or even state prevailing wages. Uh, the only bad part with private is sometimes they don't pay you. But nowadays, because money is so good, yeah, people are paying out. So we probably only bid against sometimes only one electrical subcontractor on a project. Sometimes it can be 10. More recently, it's been growing just because everybody's hesitant these days in these market conditions. Yeah, you know, the Dow's doing really well. You know, you can tell that it's coming back up. And so we're all still doing really well but slowly but surely everybody's kind of freaking out. So they go back to the public sector where money is guaranteed by the government. They must pay on a certain day because that's essentially bonded money that was approved by lawmakers through voting processes. So they've set aside this money for those projects. And so once things are really bad where there's no private construction going on, I mean, we can pot- potentially go against 30 different companies. Gotcha. So there's a lot of different people out here. You know, people like to cut corners by not paying their workers a certain wage amount. That'll help them win bids. But if they get caught, they'll pretty much, like I said, not have any, (laughs) I guess, future doing any more work, like things like that. So it really depends. Uh, Relationships help a lot, uh, especially if you worked well with a general contractor or a specific owner and you didn't delay the project, your price was good. If they don't need to bid it out, they'll just come back to you and keep using you. So for us in the post office, we've done a really good job where uh, they keep contacting us for more work, and that's kind of the—I um, don't want to say direction that we're going, but we want to expand in that area where we're doing maintenance work outside of electrical. And for these other electrical projects where we have to bid, uh, you know, sometimes we get really lucky and people just put our names down. They get prices from other people and say, "Hey." can you beat it or can you do it? If not, then, you know, we just send them a letter say, Hey, we withdraw from this bid. So sometimes they just don't trust other people. They just get their prices, but they still want to use us. And so that helps a lot in the relationships with yep. whom you work. That makes sense.
0: And you said that the whole project takes a year, but what about your portion? Cause you guys only do electrical.
1: We're there pretty much the entire time. We'll probably only get like a week or two break in between where it's like, you know, the painting guys are working or the drywall guys are working, ceiling guys are working. But pretty much I would say 75% of the time we're on site. That 25% will be other trades that kind of have to work in there while we're not in there.
0: Okay. So for so those the you're there time. the whole time. Okay. Yeah. All the way through. So do you guys do multiple jobs at the same time too? Or is it just like this is my job all year?
1: No, we right now do multiple jobs. Right now, I think we're doing like five school projects
0: and you're able to do year. that because even though you're there the whole time not everyone's doing the same role on the i mean how can you do multiple jobs something with, like that so like you
1: put, a, you put different teams on different projects and and timing as well so if one job isn't working we move that crew over to this other job kind of do double time and try to push this one forward and then when that opens up again you, you pull different guys off so usually you have a foreman which is like one guy who's like a leader And he kind of handles like the smaller journeymen to do different work. Like, hey, you're gonna do the, the piping. The other guy's gonna do the wiring. And then sometimes it's like, hey, I need to borrow a guy at my other job site. So this one slows down while this one goes up. So it's all about manpower management and schedule management.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And then
1: once we kind of hit our max, it's like, hey, we want another project, the price is right, but I don't have any guys to do that project. Everything else is kind of ramping up right now and we need all of our guys there. We kind of have to let this one go. So that's kind of the decisions that we need to come to. But in the meantime, you know, having small maintenance work helps a lot because maybe you don't win too many jobs. And now, you know, there's too many breaks in between or there's not enough work to put like eight guys on each project, you know, sometimes there's a max to that these little small maintenance work, you send them out and do it and it keeps them busy and you know it keeps employee morale up from like i guess a lack of future essentially some people get worried that hey we don't have as much work or they're not calling me in as much i better go find another job it's it's very hard to find good young help these days uh yeah people really don't want to work with their hands anymore everybody wants to go into like coding school or do something like that which great for them but you know, one thing that stays certain throughout all history is people will always need more buildings and people will always need to fix their buildings. So it's a really good industry to have a consistent basis of work for a long time.
0: That's right. I went to a conference just now and they were talking about it. They were talking about how since unemployment right now is so low, it's like really hard to find good workers. And so like everything's more expensive for like construction mm-hmm. and whatnot, too. Yeah. How, so how are you finding uh, your people? And how do you qualify them as, you know, you're a good journeyman or whatever the term is? So
1: how do we find people? Well, sometimes we just call them out of the hall because we're a union contractor. So it's really easy for us. I mean, the union pretty much does all the vetting process for you. Like you get voted in and you get interviewed. But let's just say it's one of our inside guys. Yeah, we have an interview process where we pretty much ask them a lot of code questions. Like, you know, how many number 12 wires fit in a three-quarter inch conduit? And if they know. know the answer to that... Exactly. If they know the answer to that, I've known that you've probably done work in a commercial space before. Then I'll ask you, all right, here's a half inch EMT pipe. I want you to bend it and show me what like an offset box bend looks like. And you can physically see them do that kind of work. And, you know, we we'll always give them trial periods like, hey, start with us. You know, three months, we'll pay you a little bit under <clears throat> what you want to make. And then if you can prove to us then after that three months, you'll get what you want and we can keep working from there you don't need too much knowledge of electrical itself. In the beginning, it's just moving some material over carrying boxes, you know, holding things while the real electrician does work, a lot of labor stuff, you know, cause you need to physically see them and watch them do the work. And then they'll let you try it and you kind of learn from there. So that's going really from the bottom up is like learning the material, like going into the warehouse, ordering things at Home Depot, bringing it to the job site, seeing what they're used for, how it's used. You know, That's kind of how, we train people. So
0: what age yeah. do you usually hire? Sure.
1: You know, right now our business, I would say our average age probably is like 55.
0: Oh, so which is older really dues, bad. I'm trying to like doing your work. Yeah, okay,
1: cool. Exactly. Most are on field. The youngest person I think is like 45. Like I said, people just don't want to work with their hands. So either people just stay unemployed or they'd rather work at somewhere like McDonald's or something. It's, you know, you can't be, you need to have some education, like at least a high school degree, to do this work. You know, basic math. Um, a lot of people have a stigma that electricity is dangerous, and it is dangerous. But if you know what you're doing, it's just as risky as I would say driving a car. You know, if you have the skills and you took, you know, the time to learn the knowledge, it shouldn't be dangerous. Especially, you shouldn't be really working on live electrical at all. Um, but that's another story.
0: Okay, cool. So they don't need any certifications or anything, right? As long as they can do the work, good to go.
1: Uh, Labor-wise, yeah, you don't need a certification. Once you start doing real electrical work, which is like wiring, and what I mean by wiring is like labeling that wires and doing branch circuits. So there are things you can do in electrical to start saving you costs that if you have, I don't know, let's say 10 branch circuits, you can stick all of those wires into one big tube and start branching them out. And so only really veteran electricians can do something like that because it'll take a lot of math to figure out, like, how many wires can I fit in this conduit? Where do I, like, break off of? There's a lot of code with that as well. So you need to, like, number it and follow it because on drawings, they usually don't show you the conduit route. All they show you is, hey, here, I want an outlet here. You figure out how to get the pipes and wire here. And so it starts getting really confusing, you know, like yeah. where does this one? go? where does that one go? You know, how many can I put on here? What else do I need to bring through there? So uh, I would say you probably need at least five to 10 years experience to start handling something like that. Just on job knowledge.
0: What happens if your wire is too short? Is there a way to make it longer <laughs> or you just like start over?
1: So if you're doing very large wires and very long runs, if you're short, unfortunately, you're fucked.
0: What about residential?
1: In residential, it's really easy. You just get a wire nut and then you just, you know, splice some wires and you just make it go longer. You might just put a little four square box in there and what you call it is a junction box. You know, you can get lucky there, but let's say you're doing a hundred foot pull. Maybe there's not a single junction box in between and you're short from like your panel to your sub panel. You got to re-pull. You can't. (laughs) Actually, you can add a junction box, you know, but in the case that maybe it's already been covered by the drywall and you don't want to open up the drywall again. Yeah. You kind of have to re-pull again.
0: <laughs> all right. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So what do you guys usually work at? Are you guys only focused in the San Francisco area? Do you guys go down to South Bay too?
1: Oh uh, yeah, we do the whole Bay area. So um, in terms of the post office, we handle all of Northern California, West of the five, the school projects. We've, we have one right now in uh, Novato, which is North Bay, we have one in the South Bay right now, Windmill Springs Elementary School in San Jose. Uh, we have a couple in San Francisco. Uh, we did one in we did a fire station recently in Menlo Park. We go all over. We, we're focused primarily in the Bay Area. We've done some East Bay jobs as well. Uh, we try not to go too far. I mean, essentially, if the money's right, if I got to go to Mars, I'll go to Mars. Just <laughs> as long as it as it works out you know i'll just bring my crew there you know they handle housing handle food the money's just got to be right and it's got to be the right timing but primarily we're focused in the bay area
0: okay sounds good what do you think people need to know that they don't really know about your profession i mean everything i'll tell you a
1: very i'll tell you a very interesting <laughs> statistic all right the most deaths in electrical happen at 120 volts that's your common House outlet, yeah. So, like, even the high voltage stuff that doesn't really kill people because people don't mess with it. Most people mess with 120, and that's where they die. Yikes! So, pretty much, don't try not to touch anything live electrical. If you see a wire, just assume that it's it's on and just stand away from it. If you're not a certified professional, I mean, maybe you've worked in electrical for so long, you've seen these guys do it. Oh, I can do it too. No, that's, that's causing a fire hazard for someone else. That's someone else's life on the line. You can even tell a guy, hey, go turn off the breaker. I'm going to go mess with this switcher outlet. Don't even trust the guy that you're sending. You can trust no one when doing this work. You need to make sure you yourself are safe. Jesus. So, And then number two, actually, this will help, I think, your listeners the most amount of money. Anytime you have an electrical issue, the first thing I personally would do is call your utility, PG&E essentially. Half the time, it's actually something wrong on their side, whether uh, a tree landed on a power pole, so one of the phases got knocked out. That's why like half of my lights work, but the other half doesn't. Something's wrong with my electrical. Let me try, call an electrician for $200 to diagnose it. And all he's gonna do is tell you to call pg I can't do anything about it. So call pg 1st They don't charge you at all for calling PG&E. You just tell them it's an emergency. Hey, half my lights are out, you know? What are we gonna do? They'll send somebody out there. And if they realize, hey, it's not us, call an electrician. At least you got PG&E out of the way. You don't have to call an electrician first and spend money there. Call PG&E first and say, hey, I'm having this kind of trouble. I think it's maybe from your side. It doesn't cost you anything to have them be sent out.
0: Well, That's cool, man. That's pretty much it. Hey, you definitely dropped a lot of knowledge right here. And my head's throbbing already. And I even have some background in this stuff. Like I lived something new. I didn't yeah, know about I the mean- whole three-phase stuff. Um,
1: from the wires go really deep into it <laughs> well actually the wires coming from residential is only what they call single phase since it's pretty much two hot wires and a neutral and then if you want three phase to come into your building you'll notice some poles have these big large square or round boxes and that's their step i don't want to call it step down transform but it's a single phase to three phase transformer and so then you can get your commercial three phase Things there. I was going to talk got more about it, that one, but it. I think that your viewers are going to be a little more. It's heavy electrical engineering, and even electricians, they don't really understand this as well. You know, electrician is a trade that, you know, installs electricity. But when it comes to understanding the knowledge of electricity, only electrical engineers can really understand that. Uh, so the fact that you're telling me you're having a hard time, even when I first started, too, I was having a hard time understanding. So You know, none of my workers if I had asked them hey like let's change this 480 down to 277 oh they'll they'll know that but like maybe let's change this 208 timer into a 120 timer they'll be like oh I don't know how to do that and so you have to kind of that's why you know most contractors they just follow what's on the drawing they cannot design themselves that can only come from an engineer so luckily I have that background and I can understand it but most people wouldn't understand that. Got so. it. So to clarify, well, we won't go into it.
0: everything that's coming out of my outlet right here, it's a 120-volt outlet. And it's either from that A A line to neutral or a, that a, B line to neutral.
1: Exactly. Right? And then I, I guess... black and a white or red and a white.
0: What? So what do two 240-volt uh, outlets look like? Are those like giant circular ones with the three
1: prongs? Exactly. Uh, okay. Three prongs are sometimes four prongs. So what, why would it have four prongs? It's... So black and red, which is, you know, between phase A and phase B. You have your neutral, which is your white, and then you have a green, which is your ground. So sometimes they'll be four prong.
0: Oh, okay, oh got it. So phase so it's red, black, uh, white.
1: White and, and green.
0: Green. Oh, okay, got it. So green is so ground your neutral opposite. is white. Red is phase A and black is phase B, or vice versa. Oh yeah,
1: black got is it. phase A, <laughs> red is phase B, white is neutral, green is ground. So your outlet right in front of you or whatever, that'll have usually a black wire, a white wire, and a green wire. Mm, got it. So yeah. if you look at the prongs as well, the left one should be black, right one should be white, and the bottom one should be um, green. But then actually, I think actually the right side is is black. <laughs> Anyways.
0: It doesn't matter. It's 120 volts in between the left and the right, and um, you have your ground. Exactly. In the middle.
1: Oh. That's the that's safety thing, yeah. Got it, got it, got
0: it. So then, yeah, you're right. So I guess half the house is using phase A and neutral, half the house is using phase B and neutral, just to like spread it out a little bit.
1: Exactly. Um, and then you have obviously the stuff that'll use between phase A and phase B. So you'll see, a oh, good electrician should be using the corresponding wire colors to that. So all your phase A stuff would be black. All your phase B stuff would be red. But got it. Like I said, a lot of people don't be doing that, so. Yeah, Yeah. you see the
0: outlets, it's all like the same color. You're like, oh my God.
1: You know, a lot of funny
0: things you'll see notice
1: people do wrong are switches. You know, when's the hot wire coming in? When's the neutral going out? That people will always flip switches. And back in the day, they used to uh, flip the switch colors as well. But that's another story. as well. So that's why you should really be careful with electricity because, you know, technically the neutral is a return path that if. Let's say your load with it's your light that isn't on, you can touch the neutral, you wouldn't get shocked. Mm. But if it's running the load because it's a return path, you'll get shocked. And especially if the wires are flipped on a switch or something, you don't know if it's on or not. It gets really, really dangerous that you probably shouldn't be touching this stuff. Or, you know, maybe you touch it with your screwdriver by accident. Or, yeah. you know, you're pulling out the wire and it just touches the uh, the metal box
0: inside.
1: All that fire.
0: I'm not gonna lie, I did that before. <laughs> and and a giant it sparks, spark, right? And then it Giant a spark, yeah. Yeah, uh, luckily it's yeah, GFCI, so I just have to un- unpop it, but it was it was scary.
1: <laughs> yeah, GFCIs are uh, the very amazing products that I love those things, but even then, they can have its own faults. Like, uh, how it works it measures the time of the ground, so when the ground doesn't return at a certain time, it realizes that hey the electricity is leaking out somewhere else. So then it'll pop. Oh. But then say you haven't properly grounded something. Like let's say in your bathtub, for some reason you use PVC pipes and you don't have, you know, you haven't grounded to your cold water pipe or hot water pipe because it's plastic in there. Your thing will keep running. If you throw a blow dryer in there, it'll keep running because it can't read the ground on the bathtub, so it'll keep going. You will be electrocuted in that water. Yes. So, proper grounding is really important to the safety of a home because if you don't then your other things get electrified and so water tap water especially is a good conductor regular water is a good insulator but once you start having minerals in it you know that's where you see those horror movies and stuff and people getting shocked by like a toaster in a in a shower in a bathtub Jeez. <laughs> yeah so be careful i mean in america everything's generally really safe um i would say places like Mexico maybe China. I don't know if their regulation is as stringent as ours, but California is pretty strict. They're getting strict makes things more expensive and really puts off people who want to upgrade their electrical in a home or something like that. So yeah, that's true. All.
0: So when does someone hire a contractor versus try to do DIY?
1: You should never do DIY.
0: <laughs> really? Even when I change a new light? You know, For like me,
1: if you want to change, change a <laughs> new light bulb. That's not, the most I can tell you to do.
0: Not a light bulb. I'm trying to change, like, uh, the fuck the, the fan in my in my bathroom. You know, I want to take it down, put a new one in the vent, right?
1: Oh, yeah, I guess
0: I changed well, my own light in the front porch. You know, that was fun. It wasn't fun when I dropped everything yeah. and I had to hold it up all day. But you know, like. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, if you turn off that breaker and there's no electricity going to it, sure. Just make sure that, you know, which hotline is touching the hotline of your fixture and which is going there. But I really wouldn't recommend it because people tend to get confident saying that, oh, yeah, I've replaced lights. Oh, yeah, I- I've done this. Vent fan, no problem. And then you start getting some complicated products. Like, I don't know if your bathroom vent had this, but sometimes they have like a high-speed lead and a low-speed lead. And then you're like, oh, whatever. Let me just put all of them <laughs> together. And then you burn out your meat. You know, you're just wasting money at that point. Or say, for some reason, hey, you know, in my outlet I have a black and white coming in, but I don't have a green going in. Well, it should be good. This black and white will work. Now you haven't grounded something, so (laughs) people don't learn the tools to say, all right, if there's no green coming, do I bring in a new ground, or what they call a pigtail is, can I ground it to the that metal box inside? And so, without knowing these things, people will start doing stuff or. They say, oh yeah, you know what? It's it's single phase, you know, 120, black to white. It doesn't matter which side black goes in. It doesn't matter which side white goes in. <laughs> that, that's when things get dangerous. And, you know, if people don't have the wi- correct wiring technique, like putting on the wire nut correctly and things like that, you can cause fires, you can cause sparks, you can cause problems in your home. And uh, it's, uh, it's dangerous. It, it really can get really dangerous.
0: So, okay, let's be real though. If you switch the wires between black and white, technically it's still 120 volt difference. Why is Correct. there no problems? What's it
1: becomes a problem in terms of like when you use that device, because that device is thinking the hot is coming in one way and leaving out the other way. Yeah. But you're reversing it and it'll still work, but sometimes it'll cause problems for the outlet itself or the light itself. And then, especially if you're chaining different things together. So, you know, you don't only put one circuit breaker to one outlet, usually you put about three outlets to a single circuit breaker. So when you start Mm -hmm. messing with it, they start acting funny within each other. And um, I don't know, some people will do this too. It's like, oh yeah. You know, I'm putting a GS- I am putting want to install a GFCI in my bathroom. I'll just tie it into my regular outlet. You can't do that either. GSIs need to be their own dedicated circuit breaker from there too. So all GFCIs can only be tied in with GFCIs. I mean, it'll work with the regular outlet, yeah, but the function of the GFCI wouldn't work correctly. Oh. Neither will that circuit breaker too.
0: Got it. So all GFCIs yeah. need to be on the same
1: circuit. Anytime. GFCI circuit, correct, oh. yeah. But- so like, let's say you have two in your bathroom. So two will go into a breaker and you have like maybe one in your kitchen. You can tie that kitchen one into that breaker, essentially, have those three connected. But you can, you shouldn't do a regular one with a GFCI because now the GFCI won't work correctly or that other one won't work correctly. Whoa. And so nowadays code, too, you can't tie. Oh, yeah, like I want to add an extra light. I'll just hook it up to my outlet because I don't have a light in here. <laughs> nowadays in code that's illegal back in the day it was all good because they just didn't know but nowadays you couldn't do that so i see see. that's why i tell people don't do diy because there are certain rules you need to follow that's set specifically to your city so like milbrae would be different than san bruno different than milpitas different than san jose they they all have different rules different inspectors and then also pg&e has their own rule book as well if you don't follow pg&e's rules don't even think about it. Even if you pass your city stuff, PG will be like, no, you don't pass our stuff and vice versa. So people don't get to learn that. You'll just learn how to say, hey, yeah, I know how to wire it. That's not be advisable.
0: Good. Nice. Good to know. Do you have any other comments that you think people should know?
1: Yeah, don't put too many things on a SQL circuit if you are going to do DIY. It's like, oh, let me put 20 lights on here. There's an actual limit you can put based on average. Oh, this is really important. Your wire size matters. So like you said earlier, as the conductor size grows, you can put more amperage on it, which means you also need to increase the size of your circuit breaker. Most wires in America, they handle up to 15 amps and they go into 20 amp breakers. So let's just say somehow your load takes 30 amps, your wire will burn within its insulation because it's going over. And that's why your circuit breaker is there to read, Hey. You're going over a certain amount. I'm going to cut you off before the wire itself like gives out and starts a fire. So if you do plan on installing things that are more than 20 amps, make sure you run new wire through a bigger wire like number 10 wire or number 8 wire. If you don't put the correct size wire, that is a fire hazard, like a real, real fire hazard. Your breaker might be able to kick in before or it'll kick in a lot. But when your breaker gets used a lot, breakers also have failures as well. A lot of older panel breakers, they were just made defectively, and they'll just take the power, be overloaded, melt and stay on, and then your wire will essentially burn, and that'll cause a fire in your home. Jeez. Yeah, so... Don't DIY, hire. hire,
0: hire an electrical contractor. Yeah, if hire anything, a like, right? Contractor. It's yeah. like, you can do your own flooring. You can paint your own walls. But when it comes to electricity, don't mess around. Hire somebody. Yeah, man. There are a
1: lot of YouTube videos out there where people are doing their own electrical work. And I'm like, Oh no, don't be <laughs> doing this. Like they're like, I'm going to install a circuit breaker live. I'm like, why you can just turn it off. Like right now we're doing a huge job at this hospital. We're installing an 800-amp breaker live 480 because it's a emergency surgery room of a hospital, and they can't lose power They're 24-7. And so that has a hazard category of four,
0: yeah. which
1: means the arc flash radius is 20 feet. So anybody <laughs> who's not in their arc flash protection suit, that flash can travel up to 20 feet. And you want to know the heat of that? It's four times hotter than the sun, 25,000 degrees Celsius. If you get hit by one of those, that's instant death. You melt, you like literally you like internally combust. And we have to do that shit. It's, it's not, <laughs> that's really dangerous, but like two of the largest it's... electrical contractors, these guys do a billion a year. Their insurance told them, no, you can't do this work. And that's why they're contacting small guys like me because you're willing like, to die for work. Essentially, yeah, God. I mean, you should see these, these PG&E videos. These guys are, like, walking on 22,000-volt transmission lines. And so it's kind of like a bird landing on a power line. It's because you're not grounded, the electricity just flows through you. You become that same potential. You become 22,000 volts. Yes. And thank God you're not touching the ground. Or that you know will go through you, essentially. So it's going all around you. And so they wear, like, Faraday cages. They're wearing, like, old you know, old style chain like the Knights used to wear. And then that's how the electricity flows through the chain mail and keeps them safe inside.
0: So wait, it will arc or is there a the potential to arc at 20 feet?
1: Oh man. So when you're at that high of a voltage, no, I'm talking about it your will job, arc.
0: your job. Like oh. when you're like doing your live wire test and people are wearing, I'm assuming like this protection gear.
1: Like the only time it'll arc is if you drop a tool. Oh. Somehow you short the system and that, that'll blow up. It, it shouldn't arc. I would say an arc potential is like 0.01%. Got it. But that 0.01% could happen if something forces it. So yeah. if I drop a tool or I touch in between the wires, oh yeah, you'll get fucked. And then you die. And like, <laughs> yes. Death. Oh, if you're really in an emergency dire situation where you have to touch electrical to either turn it off or something, you need to rip a wire out. Your life is on the line. Lift your left leg and only grab with your right arm because the electricity will flow through your right side away from your heart on your left side. So never touch electricity with your left hand or your left foot. Just in case you have to touch live, lift your left foot up and grab it with your right hand so it goes through your right side. And if someone needs to take you off, make sure they drop kick you because if they touch you, then both <laughs> of you guys become electrocuted. So get a running start and have them drop kick you <laughs> off of it. Got it. Yeah, and then another good two, another good tip is never grab wires with your palms facing out. I would say palms facing in. So if you do get shocked when your hand muscles contract, you get pulled back to you. When you go there and you grab on, then your hand muscles contract and you grab onto it. So,
0: jeez. Yeah. Have you gotten shocked yet?
1: Yes, I've been shocked by one twenty. So uh, this was a defect by a uh, by the lighting supplier. What they did. Within the light is they swapped the neutral and the ground wire in it. So I'm installing the enclosure, you know, the the case essentially, and it's just making this loud buzz. And I'm feeling the electricity through my body. So I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, did I ground this incorrectly? I'm looking at it, I'm like, no, you know, black to black, white to white, green to green. And then you just hear popping, like pop, 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 buzzing, buzzing, and, and 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 you feel the electricity going through, and you put your tester on the case itself and it's going off and you go, what the hell's going on? And so that ended up being like a $30,000 mistake on the, uh, the lighting supplier. They had to provide me all new, uh, lights, which was like about 25 G's. And then I told them, I'll do the work for them, but you know, it's a back charge because you guys messed up on your thing. it's like a factory defect warranty is you have to pay me to do the work too. I'm not going to do it for free. So they had to hire another guy to do it. And so that cost, them another like 10 G's right there too. Jeez. So that's what I mean. It's like you can never trust anything or anybody in electrical. Don't trust the person you're working with. Don't even trust the items that you're buying because someone making it, they might make a simple mistake in switching the wires. Ooh, man. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, with the higher voltage, higher amperage you get, it's just the more dangerous it gets. So I, if, like, you know, I'm a consumer, you could open your panel door to look at your breakers to reset it but never take your panel off. Like never take your panel cover off or take your dead man cover off. Like never, ever. Right. Unless you're, you know, trained and certified. Like I could do it. You, I, I, I mean, you're, I you have it. an electrical background. Nah. So. not that. Yeah, and they, spell, they sell special tools too. So they're called insulated tools. They have like a plastic coating along the entire neck of the tool. And so that really helps you. And they sell, you know, they sell these like felt gloves with like rubber pads on the front like they cover your fingertips on the front and so that'll save you too and a lot of work shoes you'll see that they have like a dielectric that's electrically insulating so you don't get shocked through too if you're like working in puddles and stuff
0: mm. cool yeah. man i'm glad to see that you're like really good at your craft man it's good good to see you killing it man
1: oh man thank you very much i mean i just uh I don't know. I act like I know a lot and I think I do know a lot, but there's so much more to learn.
0: Well, thank you very much. How can people get a hold of you?
1: You can uh, call me anytime because I'm willing to do any work. 415 830 2020. Pretty much the smallest jobs that we do is like a panel replacement, which is three to 5,000. I really don't switch, you know change light bulbs for you or install a switch or add some outlets that's just too small a work for my crew but uh if you're looking for real electrical upgrades for your home or your business as i mentioned before we also do general work so if you're looking for a major home renovation or you know like a kitchen restaurant remodel we do those things and if somehow one of your viewers happens to be you know hospital owner or food processing plant you know, that's pretty much our specialty. Cool. Uh, you can also send me an email at sam at com. That's G-R-A-N-D-E-L-E-C.com. Uh, you know, I have a lot of business connections because we work with a lot of different trades. So, you know, whatever you kind of need to get done, you know, our company can handle it for you.
0: Do you guys have a website?
1: Yes, we do. It's www.grandelectric.us. G-R-A-N-D electric.us. And so you'll see all of the commercial projects that we've done on there. Um, you know, That's more for our commercial clients that want to see that we've done like million dollar projects essentially because uh, that's kind of the, I guess, people that they're looking for. Yeah,
0: very cool. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you telling us everything that we need to know about electricity. I'm sure everyone's going to have a great time listening to this and just be like, wow, I learned so much today. It's like I'm
1: back in school. Uh yeah, thank you very much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I'm a you know big time listener of yours as well. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of things will go over people's head, unfortunately. Uh, I know I speak a little fast, and electricity is not a very easy thing to understand. But one thing I want to stress to all the listeners before they go is uh, it is a big safety matter, electricity. You know. People die doing this work. And so you shouldn't really try to mess around with, I would say, hire a uh, licensed contractor. That would be the best bet for anybody. And uh, if you have any questions about electrical, you know, feel free to call me, text me, email me. I'll be glad to help. Uh, yeah, have a good night.
0: You too, man. See ya. Here are some of the key takeaways that I got from my interview with Sam. Electrical contracting is a hard profession and you really have to know what you're doing. Otherwise, you can get hurt. When it comes to electricity, don't trust anybody. Your life is on the line, and you need to be sure that everything is working as expected. Electrical contractors have a lot of skills that you don't, so don't try to DIY your own electrical jobs. It was great getting the inside scoop on the trade and understanding what an electrical job entails and how much it costs. And I'm so grateful to have them on the show today to teach us something new in a fun and exciting way. And hopefully, you got a lot out of it too. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.